You're listening to the C Word Radio, the podcast where we ask, what the fuck does young cancer survivorship mean? With me, Helen King, and guests. Subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Today we're delving into the back catalogue of the C Word Radio and revisiting one of my favourite interviews. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss an episode. I think most people who know me are already aware that I had breast cancer in 2018, and I'm not really a huge fan of Pink October. I think the main issue for me is since my own experience with breast cancer, I just find the messaging and imagery around Pinktober just does not resonate with what my experience was and continues to be. And to be honest, I find it gross that companies profit from our misery and our trauma and from us going through this shitty thing called cancer by adding pink to their packaging. I actually did a little bit of reading around Pinktober and this one article that I found, which I will link in the show notes because I thought it was really good and it really sums up how I feel, but in a far more elegant way. And it's an interview on the website called Boxer um, from a few years ago now, but it um, is with an author, Gail Sulik, who wrote the book in 2011, Pink Ribbon Blues. And a lot of what she looked at was the way that companies have turned breast cancer into a big business. The part of this article that just has stuck with me since I read it is around the origins of what we now know as Breast Cancer Awareness Month in Pinktober. So the original idea actually started in the late 80s by a woman called Charlotte Haley. She was a 68-year-old activist, and her mother and sister had both had breast cancer. She was really frustrated with the lack of federal funding, this is in the States, for breast cancer prevention. And so she decided that she wanted to do something about this, and so she started tying peach-coloured ribbons onto notes saying the National Cancer Institute annual budget is $1.8 billion and only 5% goes for cancer prevention. Help us wake up our legislators and America by wearing this ribbon. She went on to do interviews about what she was doing and Evelyn Lauder, who is part of the Estee Lauder family, approached Haley to ask if she could use the peach ribbon for a magazine campaign. Haley said no because she did not want her message to be watered down or commercialized. So instead of respecting those wishes, they changed the color of the ribbon to what we now know as the pink ribbon. Evelyn Lauder and Self Magazine introduced the pink ribbon as their symbol for Breast Cancer Awareness Month in 1992, and the rest is history. The other point that Sulik makes in this interview really got to the core of my discomfort around breast cancer awareness campaigns. I just, yeah, you have to read this article, but basically what she talks about is breast cancer awareness campaigns do very little to create knowledge about breast cancer. A lot of the awareness and advocacy is centered around fun activities. I feel this too, and Sulik makes this amazing point that this minimizes breast cancer, and it does nothing to educate people about what it is really like facing it, what it's like to live with the uncertainty, the fear of reoccurrence, um, and even death for some of us. So this is why... I have decided to do something different for Pinktober. If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you will have seen the first few posts over the past few days of my This Is Breast Cancer social media campaign. I wanted to just show a different face of breast cancer and hope that I can provide people with connection and a more authentic depiction of it. You can get involved by sharing the posts, by doing your own if you like, and just put the hashtag, this is breast cancer. And let's just start something. Let's start something where people who have been impacted by breast cancer can really feel like they are being heard. And let's go beyond the pink fluffiness of breast cancer.
I'm also supporting the charity Sweet Louise this month. I will leave a link in the show notes for where you can donate. If you haven't heard of Sweet Louise, they are an amazing charity who support people living with incurable breast cancer. So my interview today is with a woman who knows firsthand how essential groups like Sweet Louise are. And I thought, what better way to show you where your money will go than talk to someone who is living with breast cancer, has been living with it for the past 12 years, and really benefits from the donations that go to Sweet Louise. Cheryl Carr was only 38 when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer. She was reeling from a divorce and parenting two young children. So like so many of us, the diagnosis was a huge shock. There was no family history for Cheryl. She led a reasonably healthy lifestyle, yet cancer visited and then it came back. This is Cheryl's story. I came out of the first time and, and you know, they found a couple of lumps and it had spread into my lymph nodes my arm. So I had a, a mastectomy on the left breast and had all my lymph nodes taken out of my arm. And, you know, I went on my merry way after that. You know, the stats then were, were pretty good. It was like, oh, look, you know, because you're young and your age and, you know, we've done all this and there's only, there's only a 25% chance this will come back if, you know, we've done all the procedures. And then, um, yeah, and then four years later, just when, you know, life was going good again, it taps me on the shoulder again. It just says, no, I've got a different route for you. And it's like, come on. <laughs> what are you doing to me? Like, I'm living a good life now. You just, you don't need to do this. I've learned all my lessons. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Did you go through treatment? Do you have chemo, radiation, those delightful yeah. things? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually had, they said to me because I was younger, they were going to actually give me a stronger dose because they thought my body could handle it more. And they were going to give me eight rounds rather than six rounds that they did for older women back then. I got to the seventh round and I just said, <laughs> Sorry, you can stick the last round up your ass. Yeah. In the nicest way possible. Then did the six six weeks worth of radiation. And then that was fine. And then I was just keen to get on with life. Like I, I felt like I'd wasted a year of connecting with my children. Gracie especially, she was only two and she had no idea why suddenly there were these strangers who were Nana and Granddad that she'd really never met had come over from New Zealand to Australia to be with us. And suddenly there's all these strangers that are trying to feed her and put her down and all the rest of it. And all she wanted was mum. So I had felt like I just, I wanted to get back to life. I wanted to get back to my children. I wanted to get back to a career. I wanted to get back to my life as being a single person. And, and I was pretty positive that for me, I thought I had this understanding of what caused the cancer. You know, we all sit there and go, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? So for me, I had felt it was the stress caused from the ending of my marriage. And so I thought, look, I've learned my life lessons. I'm young. I'm, I'm not a candidate for cancer. You know, I looked at the side effects of the tamoxifen and just went, this doesn't fit in with my new life. You know, this is, this doesn't. And I just went from now on, I'm, I plan, I will live stress-free. I will not get myself into any kind of situation again where I will end up like that. And so I chose not to take it. I was healthy and I just had this incredible mindset. I knew 100% it wasn't coming back. Cancer? What cancer? You know, from the time that we found it to it being completely cut out um, was only two to three weeks. So in my head, I compartmentalized it and just went, I only had cancer for two weeks. It's gone. Done. Flip on my life. Get on. Until four years later when it came back. Yeah. And the next time it came back in my spine. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that was another whole journey again. And at that time, you know, I'd spent four years building up. Oh, wow. I was, I owned and ran a building company with my brother. I was living the dream. I'd always, ever since I was little and playing with blocks and I'm working with the clients and, and adjusting plans and making them come to fruition and giving them the keys on that first day to walk in the door. It was just this incredible high I was constantly living. Yeah. You know, when when fate knocked on my shoulder again, that was tough. I mean, and this is the thing is I know being told once that you have cancer is mind-blowing and hard and living with that how do you like what goes through your head and what happens when they say look I'm sorry it's come back (laughs) I remember the doctor at the time when he was trying to tell me I actually argued with him he you know no it hasn't no and he's you know he hands me the the notes and he says yeah look it's come back I started reading through and I'm like see this is proof it hasn't come back I can't see the word cancer here anyway any anywhere and he said he pointed out the word metastatic and explained what it was and of course I wasn't expecting that I just had back pain and uh, yeah didn't know what it was so anyway so I had no one with me get out to the car park in a bit of a daze and then can't drive and don't know what you're doing and yeah yeah, for me, the brain kind of just took back over again. It just became very manner of a fact. Okay, let's do this. Okay, if that's what the prognosis is, what do we need to do to solve this problem again? And I was just lucky that particular doctor had contacts within the breast care unit. He got me an urgent appointment and... In a way, I think fate sort of intervened there as well because I was living out of Melbourne at the time and I drove for about two hours a stay to get back into Melbourne to see this thing. And the receptionist says to me, I'm sorry, didn't you get the text yesterday? She said, I'm sorry, we've had to cancel your appointment. And I just looked at her and I said, I've driven two hours to be here. I'm in a lot of pain. I can't fit me in. And it basically, it went backwards and forwards. And in the end, I just said, look, I'm going to sit here all day. I'm prepared to do that. I'm prepared to squeeze in during his lunch hour. I'm prepared to wait till the end of the evening. I'm prepared to wait until someone doesn't turn up, you know, and you can slot me in. But I am prepared to sit here and I will wait all day. And so he did. He um, he slotted me in in between his, uh, the start of his lunch break. And he hadn't even looked at me because he hadn't been preparing. I was cancelled. I was one of his normal clients. And so he started scrolling down my information. And all of a sudden, he picks up the phone and he rings some doctor in Perth. He's, he's getting really excited. He's got you know all this terminology going off. And look, we would need to do this. We need to do that. Would you fly in from Perth to come and do this sport with me? I think we need to do a blah, 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 blah. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, holy hell, <laughs> what's going on? But I felt like I was in kind of good hands. And then he got off the phone and then he looked at me and he said, oh, I'm really sorry. And then got solemn again. He felt like he had to downplay yeah. his excitedness. But I've kind of felt like, I was almost like a pet project for him. Right. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible. But it was it was because he said, and I didn't mind. Like I didn't mind at all. But he he said to me, "Look, Cheryl, most you would have seen most of the patients out there. They are much older, and he would do spine stabilization for them. And generally, while the prognosis wasn't good, it was usually to help with pain relief." But he said, you know, you, by this time I was 42, Grace was six years old by this time. And he said, your daughter and your son, they need you. You're young, you're fit. This is what we need to do to your spine. And we're going to do it in such a way that you're going to live for the next 40 years. And I just said, that's exactly what I want to hear. That's what I want. I wanted someone to believe in me. I wanted someone to not just look at me and give up. Where's the game plan? Let's do this. Happy for you to use me as a guinea pig. Yeah. Pretty quickly he got me in. And the reason for that was it turned out that two-thirds of my T10 
sits about the bra line on your spine. That had been eaten, two-thirds of it had been eaten by the cancer and what was left had a fracture in it. And he actually said to me, I don't want to scare you, Cheryl, but I'm actually not quite sure how you're walking right now. I want you to get straight in the car. You go straight home. You're not to go to the supermarket. You're not to lift any bags. You're not to lift your daughter. You're not to do anything. And I had to get you into surgery straight away. So that was, that was another scary moment. <laughs> it was just like, oh, Jesus. Little did he know I'd been out on the building site the day before moving bricks. Oh, my God. <laughs> And I was I was in a lot of pain by the end of the evening. I was crawling around on the floor. But, yeah, I didn't tell him I'd been doing that. I feel like this is a, something that I've observed and noticed. And I know for me, when I was diagnosed, it was a very aggressive cancer. And we were offered, you know, there was a new drug on the block and it was only funded for women with advanced her two positive cancer which you know you think okay well I'm glad somebody's, somebody's getting it yes but knowing that actually if I lived somewhere else it would just be part of the rating and it's really hard you suddenly understand like when you are offered something and they say it will give you it might give you this sort of percentage more. You want any of that. It's all of a sudden, it's your life and it's your outcomes and it's your time with family, friends, whatever. And I feel like unless you have been in that position, you don't understand what it's like to feel, well, is my life not that important that you're not going to fund me for this drug? I find it hard. I have the two demons on either shoulder. I have the demon that says exactly that. Does my life mean nothing? Does my children's life mean nothing? Because they would not have a mother. And Grace does not have a father in her life. So I'm her only parent. Is, is there no value on her life either? And then I have the other demon on the other side going, Oh my God, goodness, there's all this money that's been spent on me keeping me alive. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because they're not getting a lot of return for their money, right? That's just my business side coming out of me, I think. But yeah, there, there's a lot of those kind of thoughts that do go on. Certainly in Australia at the time, because I am 12 years along now, eight years living with metastasized wow. cancer. What I did have that was different to here, that's, I think, been a huge thing for me and a huge reason why I'm alive, is I was given an oncologist at the Peter Mac Hospital who had just finished coming in from America where they were starting to think about things a little bit differently. So what she said to me, she actually never talked of me dying. She actually just said to me, Cheryl, you know, we're at the spot now where because this is metastasized, this is going to keep on coming back. But you know what? We're going to keep a close eye on you and we're going to monitor you through monthly blood tests and stuff and we'll keep on an eye on you, catch up with you every four to um, six months. We're going to keep a close eye on you. And if it starts to come back, then we'll cut out wherever it's popped up and we just stick you on a new drug. Or if we can see it starting to come back in your markers in your blood, then we just swap the medication out. And there's always new medications coming on the market and we'll just keep on going like that, Cheryl. Yeah. That was the difference. There was, And so we had this game plan. And she'd said to me that in America and certainly in the UK and stuff, they were starting to see it from the point of view of it, metastasized cancer should be treated as a long-term disease, just like heart disease or MS or any of those ones. And so... I thought, yeah, brilliant. Sounds great to me. And I got here to New Zealand and I was given um, my second oncologist I had here. Turned around and said to me, when I told them the game plan, they turned around and they said to me, do you mean more treatment? And I said, 
yes. And they said, no, I'm sorry, there's no more treatment for you when the outcome is inevitable. And it was like being told I had cancer all over again. You know, it was like, I'm going to die. Actually, it was probably the first time ever that I just said to myself, I'm going to die. There is no more help for me. They're just going to let me die. And so, you know, I was starting to tear up and I'm trying to keep myself calm and I'm thinking, well, it's not this doctor's fault and, you know, and she apologised and she said, oh, look, I'm sorry, but this is hospital policy. And I just said, so what you're telling me is if I had been here in New Zealand when it had come back, my spine, I wouldn't be sitting here alive today. And she said, no, you probably wouldn't be. And so I stood up, I just said to her, I I don't want to hear anymore. I'm sorry. And then, you know, my mind's racing. I just thought, look, it's not her fault. It's not her fault. So I leaned to him and I said, look, thank you for your time anyway. And she said the wrong thing to me, the poor doctor. She, she said to me, she leans in and holds my hand. She goes, so are you with any groups like, you know, the Cancer Council or something that can help you with this diagnosis? And I just looked at her and I said, why would I go and sit with a group and tell them how you're not going to help me? <laughs> and I walked out. And just as I was walking out, she did get shitty with me by this point. And she just said, well, you can get a second opinion, you know. And I went out to the car park and once again, I couldn't, I could barely walk. I hadn't taken anyone with me because it was just supposed to be a, hey, this is the game plan, nice to meet you and we'll keep on going like this and this is what we've found has worked for me and suddenly I'm being given a death sentence. Like this woman wasn't, this person wasn't even going to help me. I went home and I cried. For three days, I locked myself away, didn't talk to anyone, just picked my daughter up from school. That was it. And then on the fourth day, I went, okay, do you finish your pity party now? And I looked at the stats and I just went, the stats aren't always good, but for every the, for every 10 people that are walking into that oncologist's office, two of them should at least be alive five years later. How many women is she letting down by saying that she will not help them because, I'm sorry, it's metastasized. So that has been my journey ever since. Now, let me tell you about Sweet Louise, the only charity dedicated to supporting Kiwis with incurable breast cancer. They provide practical help like meal deliveries, one-to-one emotional and group support for over 760 women around the country. Right now, they really need your help. With no government funding, COVID has made things challenging for this little charity with a big heart. To make your donation, please visit sweetlouise.co.nz. Thanks so much. I just have observed this from the point of view of someone who is, you know, has come out the other side of treatment. And people always ask me, are you, you know, is it in remission? And I say, I actually have no idea. I'm, we assume it is <laughs> because they, I had a mastectomy first and lymph nodes cleared and then I had my chemo and I just, yeah, I said, there's actually, I just have to assume that it's fine. And I feel like there is this huge emphasis on, you know, us being warriors and we're in this battle and, you know, if you beat cancer and the focus is on people who have cancer warriors and they've they've come out and they're better now. And it's like, this isn't serving anyone because some of us, it will come back. And actually, we haven't been beaten by it. It's just come back. And if this is a chronic disease that you are now living with, how can we make your life as good as possible and not just throw you out on the heap, <laughs> essentially? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that strong warrior story comes back to the people that are viewing us and observing us. It's the end, it's the feel good end to a terrible story they're seeing. And don't we all want a feel good story? And yeah, most days I wake up and I uh, recount how much I'm grateful for everything. But there are low moments. 
I think we all go through that, whether it's in the middle of the night or when we're feeling sick or when we've had to have a couple of days in bed because our medication is making us feel ill. Yeah, you don't feel like a warrior during those times. No, not at all. No, and I feel like... People don't really understand the impact of cancer on your life. I think I'm three years later and I I think I'm just starting to go, I really need to sort some, like work through some shit. I'm at that point where I need to do a bit of grief work and I am now, my body is starting to heal a little bit better from it and getting more energy back. You know, that's not the picture we're showing of cancer, that it's, actually can have such a huge impact on you. And I've been thinking about this since we started talking a little while back about that monetary thing. And I think the problem is that you can't put money on this. Like you can't go, your life (laughs) is worth $100,000 because you can't put value on a person and you can't put value on that quality of life because I think that's kind of what it's about. It's the frustration of going, I don't want you to put a value on me. I want you to just say you are a human being and you are worth being on this earth for however long you are. It is a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. I know that you have been vocal about things like eye brains, which is something that a lot of people have had to fight for. And... And I think those women that came before us and fought for that. Yeah. I've met a couple of them and they're our warriors. Yes. And they would say they they don't feel, oh my goodness, thank you for you. I think for me, at first, they just put me on a standard regime. So I did my five to six years on the tamoxifen. So the second time around, I did do the tamoxifen and that worked really well. And then we could see from my bloods, right? So this is why, so I ended up being given an oncologist that was prepared to follow the game plan. And so a simple blood test, it doesn't cost much each month. And we could just, we could just see where my markers were. My markers were always low, always low. And then we got to that six year mark and suddenly my markers were starting to go up. Did the CT scan, hadn't taken hold anywhere yet. Okay, but we can identify that over three months it's it's going up. Okay, so what's next? The next step in the game plan was let's change the meds out. We know that tamoxifen only lasts for generally five years. So let's stick to that original game plan from that oncologist back at the Peter Mac Hospital Let's change this out. And so that was just back in 2019. Now, if we had not followed that game plan and I was only being seen every six months, by that point it could have been anywhere in my body and I've gone, oh, it's come back a third time. I'm sorry, just go and get your affairs in order. But instead here I am another two years later, I'm still alive. I still have no cancer in me. So I, but I would not still again be sitting here today had I still been with that original oncologist that was given to me when I arrived here in in New Zealand. So I say to everyone, you've, every time I, and this is the beauty about Sweet Louise right, is they give us the opportunity each month up and down this country for all of us who have advanced breast cancer or stage four cancer or metastasized cancer, whatever word is given to it, for all of us to come together to share our stories, to share pain and suffering but also to laugh. But for me, it's about sharing those stories. It's about sitting down next to a woman who might have also been told, oh, there's no no more treatment for me. Bullshit. I'm sorry. Bullshit. So, yeah, I, I try to spread that word as much as possible. So in 2019, I had done my time with tamoxifen. I then went on to letrozole, had five months on that, and my body reacted. And it got to the point I couldn't walk anymore. 
Yeah, my feet swelled up so much and I could feel every bone in my feet when I walked on them. So then we changed it out for Xmestine and I got 11 months out of that. And then suddenly my body rejected that as well. But because of those warriors that went before us and we got the funding for this Ibrance, meant I had another option. And the thing is, it's not like I needed I need the funding for the tamoxifen as well as the letrozole, as well as the exomestine, as well as the Ibrance all at once. Does that make sense? So if if we're talking about how much the hybrids is going to cost everyone, think about the cost that isn't being occurred by people not taking the other drugs that they were on before. Okay? That also has to be taken into consideration. But yes, hybrids, for me, the side effects are just so much less. I feel almost like a a new person again for the first time in eight years. Yeah. I'm, and I think, and that's where we need to come back to this game plan of, hey, we constantly need to be looking at what new drugs are out there because there are new ones coming out all the time. And we do know from, I think it was about a year ago, an, an article came out that explained per head of capita, we are one of the lowest spending on health in the world. I mean, we're rated the same as a second to third world country. And yet we have the money coming into this country that that says actually, no, we're not. We're, we're doing the first world country. And I think too, what the other biggest thing I have found since I have come here is there is still this thought of, oh, we're the poor cousin to Australia. So, of course, you know, there's all this money, there's more population in Australia, so the, the funding's there more, and, you know, you were lucky because you were in Australia. And I'm like, that's not how it works in Australia. I was in the state of Victoria. The state of Victoria has to, before they even get to spend a cent, has to send it off to Canberra, who takes out their piece of it. Then they took out another chunk because Northern Territory, Western Australia, South Australia and Tasmania don't generate enough money to look after their health care and their roads. And only then does Victoria get what's left of the money to then spend on health care and roads for the people in Victoria. So you can't compare an apple with an orange. Compare an apple with an apple. And you go and look at the figures of how much Victoria brings in an income compared to New Zealand. We are way ahead of the income that we are earning in this country, bringing in via exports or imports or whatever. So there's no excuse. There's no excuse for that per head of capita spending being so low. There's no excuse for new drugs not being funded for 20 years. But that, it blows my mind, really, because I think bowel cancer, for instance, have a similar thing where nothing has been funded for 20 years. Ovarian cancer, our rates haven't changed since the 1970s. Yes. And, it's, and it is insane. It is insanity to me that we it's do so have access. Yeah, we have access to research, to drugs, to information from our colleagues in America and the UK. We don't even have to put the funding in to find out what's going to work for us. No. They've done it all for us. Exactly. You know, I actually have this analogy like about that. It's like trying to watch a movie on a flip phone from the <laughs> 1990s. <laughs> yes. Like... That's what we're dealing with. And we shouldn't have to because we can afford to have the latest iPhone to watch the movies on and do whatever. But yeah. And I think part of it really is, and you've touched on it, and other women that I've talked to on the podcast who are living with cancer talked about it, that it's 
I feel like we've been so influenced by the rhetoric of beating cancer that for some of us, actually, it might have to be dealt with or managed more like a chronic disease. And the ideas around chronic disease are not um, favorable for the person who is living with it. And I, but you know what? Those stats are getting better. Yeah. By the countries that are looking at it and managing it as a disease. Yes, exactly. Someone asked me recently if there was one thing you could change or one thing that you thought that could happen, what would it be? And my response was, we need to change our thinking. Because by changing our thinking around all of this, then we change our thinking about funding. We change our thinking about how we live with this diagnosis and not die from this diagnosis. We start thinking about how we can help the people that have this diagnosis. It all comes down to thinking and we stop need to stop seeing ourselves as the poor cousins and that's left over from the 1970s when, you know, New Zealand was in a bad shape. We, it's huge the amount of times that I've come across that since coming back to New Zealand. We still have this feeling and we're not. We've got some clever people in this world that have taken some clever things out we're seen as ahead of the game yet on this particular subject we're way behind totally and this is I think why part of Pinkotober October Breast Cancer Awareness Month really does not sit easily with me because I think about like the Breast Cancer Foundation do some amazing things like I have been supported by them in lots of different ways and I am so damn grateful for that that there is somewhere I can go when I was first diagnosed and they funded counseling sessions and things I just wish their messaging was different and I wish that one of their things wasn't zero deaths from breast cancer because I don't think we are ever going to get to that point because as long as we have multiplying cells <laughs> we can get cancer and I just I wish that the rhetoric and the messaging didn't exclude people who are living with breast cancer because I I feel like it does and I feel like we are doing us all a disservice by constantly talking about beating it and being brave and being warriors and if we do die from it we have lost our battle and all of those things. Yeah, don't you hate that? I think that's why too I love Sweet Louise so much and the messaging by Sweet Louise, because it it does deal with that next stage, like you were talking about. It does bring across that messaging more. Yeah, it just, and they help, oh my goodness, they help us to live with it. Oh, I can't even begin to say, sorry, I, I'm getting <laughs> right. now. When I first, I think for the first oh, five years of having stage four, or but even before that, I wanted nothing to do with cancer. I did not want my focus to be cancer. I did not want to join any cancer groups. I did not want to sit down and talk about it because I wanted to focus on living, not on, yeah, this C word. And then I was having a particularly bad, I think, mental time. And a friend and my oncologist both recommended Sweet Louise. And why wasn't I signed up with them yet and all the rest of it? So I just, I did it with a, and then this beautiful, the most beautiful woman just knocked on my door and I had not looked back. They have just been so supportive supportive the the those coordinators so those beautiful women that that help us and this like I said there's so many of them up and down the country that are trying to I think we have over 700 members in our little group our little uh, gang that we don't like to invite people in but once you're here <laughs> you know, we have some fun oh just the help and support those you know just the phone calls or the texts, how are you and how are you feeling? And you can talk to them the way that you can't necessarily talk to family and friends because with family and friends, 
you tried to hide so much of it and especially your mental anguish because they are trying to cope with watching you as a you know they've got their own mental anguish going on around it and then sweet louise bring us together so once a month around these cups of teas and they pay for it no, for someone like me, and this is the, the next big part about those of us who do have advanced breast cancer. This world financially is hard enough as it is. We've gotten to the point where things are so expensive and living is so expensive that you have to be a two-person income for any household, really, to have even just a lower end of medium lifestyle. If you lose just one of those income streams because your partner has breast cancer, that's hard enough as it is. But when you have advanced breast cancer, there's quite often the two incomes because the other person then becomes the carer. And suddenly you go from being a two- income family to living on a disability pension which is below the poverty line and you may still have a mortgage and stuff so for someone like me I'm trying to raise my now 14 year old daughter on a disability pension that's supposed to be for one person so going to somewhere once a month where my cup of tea is paid for and that cookie is paid for. For me, that's huge. You have no idea how huge that is. But to sit, then to sit with these other beautiful women and we laugh and we maybe have a little cry, we support, but there's mainly laughter going on, you know, or we can tell cancer jokes <laughs> like nobody can. And we can all have a big laugh about it, whereas if you were to say that around your family, it, it, it would upset them. Big silence, yeah. It's, so yeah. it's huge. I can't explain to you. And for me, it was like, oh, my God, what was I thinking all these years, thinking that I shouldn't be around these beautiful people? Yeah. I think that's it's such a wonderful point. And I was actually, it was funny, I was going to ask this because I think that one of the things that people do not understand is that having cancer is really expensive. And my experience with that was during treatment where I had to leave a job where I had a bloody good income and then go on a benefit, which I had to fight for because of how our social welfare system is set up. And I was lucky. I have a very supportive family and friend network. So they kept me going in lots of different ways. But my expenses came from my body broke down from the chemo. And so it was the constant doctor visits. It was the constant having to go and get this medication and that medication and actually just trying to get to places and those sorts of things. I was lucky I didn't have dependents. I mean, you're not working <laughs> and you may, yeah, you might have kids and all of those things. And I feel like, yes, yeah, so much of what we've talked about is the unseen side of cancer that isn't spoken about. And so those voices aren't being heard. No, you're exactly right. And so for me, the other biggest thing that I do love about Sweet Louise, and they have helped me in some incredibly tight spots and that the people that these donations that go out in October to all the different, especially to do with breast cancer and stuff, but the people that donate to Sweet Louise, I don't know that they realize, but their money actually comes directly to us as a patient. It's not going, we've got plenty of cancer institutes that put their money towards trying to find a cure and do this study and that study. But we as cancer patients don't get that ongoing support and treatment with them. But Sweet Louise, we do. Sweet Louise, we do. There's been times that they've given me vouchers so I could buy food. Like that's that's huge because it's been a month where I've had to do extra doctor's visits. And for me, a doctor's visit, even though it's half price because I'm on a community services card because I earn so little, but for every doctor's visit, that's 
nearly two meals for me and Grace. So if I'm starting to take that money, that meal money out to take to the dog, where, where does my food come from? They're, oh my goodness, there's so much. They are like also a, a conduit between this money that they give to us each year that in vouchers that we can go to people to that help us in our bodies when they are breaking down from the treatments. There is, you know, when we're too ill to, to prepare our own meals or whatever, they've joined in with EAT and we can use those vouchers to have food delivered that's all pre-prepped. There's uh, physios in there. There's oh my goodness, lawn care or house care or all those things that you and your partner can't do anymore, can't take help with. But for me, food has been, they've got me out of some tricky situations when all of a sudden, here's this coordinator just rings me out of the blue and just, how are you, Cheryl? And, oh, you're not sounding so good. And I just burst into tears and just let it all out. And then they say, have you used your vouchers yet? Because you could do it for this. Oh my goodness, you know, you're a lifesaver. And the other thing is when people donate, the other thing that Sweet Louise does for us is each year they they give us or they organize, it can be an outing, it can be a weekend away, just something that's within the, up to the value of $200 for us to create special memories with our family. And that just makes me cry because, again, for me and for a lot of us who are financially not in a spot, we don't have the opportunity to do that. So for my daughter's 13th birthday, I used that part of it and she, I took her and a friend and they, she wanted to go tree climbing. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so they they paid for that out at, at Uruguay, and I had enough money left over to get us a cabin for the night at the local um, caravan park. And then when they rang to get the voucher for that, and they told the caravan park what it was for, the caravan park donated an extra night. And then the friend's parents decided to come along as well and they brought their camper van along. So at the end of the day, I was able to, sweet Louise was able to help me to provide for a special weekend away for her 13th birth. You know, that was such special memories and the weather was beautiful and we spent the time at the beach and then when I was too ill the other parents they just took over and Gracie missed out on nothing that that was huge for me as a parent and as you can hear and see it still makes me emotional and sweet Louise did that for me I did and the people that donate to sweet Louise did that for me Mm. Oh. <laughs> no, no, don't apologize because this is the stuff we need to hear. This is what I feel really passionate about as well, that this is the reality of cancer. And this is like a little bit of kindness that we can all give each other is saying, let's support you to give your daughter this amazing weekend because actually the experience is, is what's important. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so gorgeous. Oh, it's been such a wonderful conversation to have with you. And I'm so glad I've been able to sort of have this time and learn more about you. And actually that firsthand experience of what an organization like Sweet Louise does. What would your, your final thoughts as we wrap up the interview of, I guess, what you would like people to understand about what it's like living with cancer? First thing that comes to mind is the word painful mm. I know that's not very uplifting <laughs> Sorry. I try not to I try to make that's right yeah painful whether that be pain to the body or pain to the soul or pain to the mind yeah but yeah that look that sums it up yeah on so many levels whether that be 
even painful for those around you. There's so much too that comes out of that pain. People become kinder, I've found. There's one good thing that comes out of it. Suddenly things that seemed important or you get all worked up over, suddenly that doesn't, it's not there anymore. The arguments go out the window because caring is actually more important. Just the other thing I'd like to end on is, yeah, sorry. I tried to get from the upset section to the you don't. Um, uplifting section. You don't need to. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just, I for me, I really, oh my goodness, I strongly want to give back to Sweet Louise. And I know there's so many other Sweet Louise members. We feel like we want to give back to this, these people and this organisation that supports us so well. And a big part of that will be this Sweet October launch that they're doing. It's new this year. I think it's going to be fabulous. It's going to give friends and family and people that would like to donate a sense of what it is that we do once a month when we all come together. We can sit down around that cup of tea and that beautiful piece of cake. I actually have found this terrific place. It's a cafe and all of its walls are just covered in peonies. And I think that's where I'm going to have mine because it will just it has this 1950s vibe and it's just gorgeous. And again, I'm just going to use this sweet October as a way to celebrate, to bring everyone together, to celebrate living, to celebrate the joy, to celebrate the coming together. I just think it's a great opportunity for everybody to come on board. And if you can't do that, or we have a problem with this COVID thing, especially in Auckland, still taking over our lives, um, then I just say, if you feel compelled, you can still donate, knowing that your money actually goes directly to us and does some amazing good things for those of us who are living with it. So... I thank you to everybody, but thank you also to you, Helen, for having us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And thank you. Thank you for being raw and real and vulnerable telling your story. I just, I'm so grateful whenever someone opens up and tells their story. I think that it's such a gift. So thank you. Thank you for sharing a part of your story as well. Thanks so much for listening. The C Word is every Sunday at 11.55am on Auckland's 104.6 Planet FM and anytime at www.planetaudio.org.nz forward slash the C Word.